0: Now's a good time to thank our sponsor, Survivors for Solutions. There's a lot of great things about this relationship. Like us, Survivors for Solutions wants to see continued innovation in the pharmaceutical space. They embrace the free market and believe that the free market is the best solution to improve patient lives. It was founded by our close friend CZ, or John Swartacki. CZ founded the group when he saw the damage that the Inflation Reduction Act was gonna bring to the pharmaceutical ecosystem. He's been a patient, and Eric, I think you'll talk about that in a minute, but he's been a patient for several decades himself, and he wants solutions not just for himself, but for his family and friends and for Americans in the future. And he knows how important it is for continued pharmaceutical innovation to happen here in the United States, because if it doesn't, it won't happen anywhere.
1: Joe, you're right, CZ is a longtime friend of both of ours and a seasoned Washington pro, but what most people don't know is that John Swartacki has also suffered from multiple sclerosis for over 30 years. He was diagnosed and has required four different breakthrough drugs over the course of this disease in order to just live. All these drugs have been developed in a robust ecosystem of medical discovery and delivery an ecosystem that the Inflation Reduction Act and President Biden now threaten That threatens the hope and security and safety, the liberty and ultimately the lives of millions of Americans suffering from chronic, debilitating or life-threatening disease. He formed survivors for solutions to help save this system so others like himself have the chance at a fulfilling and robust life. You can learn more about CZ and his lifelong struggle with multiple sclerosis from our March 27th DCEKG interview, plus his website, survivorsforsolutions.org, or on Twitter at Hope Matters Most. Joe, we're really fortunate CZ is our leader here at DCEKG, and we look forward to advocating on his behalf and the behalf of millions of American patients in the years to come on our show.
0: Welcome back to EKG with myself, Joe Grogan, Eric Uland, and our guest today, Naomi Lopez. Naomi before the break we were talking a little bit about uh, FDA mission creep getting over maybe an over regulatory pro- posture over time in regulating artificial intelligence I just want to give you an opportunity uh, to to lay out why maybe you sounded more optimistic and and then maybe we can talk a little bit more about how it plays into drug development and then we of course we, we are very much looking forward to your insights on the Inflation Reduction Act and its effects?
2: Yes. Yeah, so my first concern is to not make AI regulation worse. So that is why I am very focused on making sure that people understand and know about the fact that AI has been around in healthcare, that there is already a regular stru- regulatory structure for it. Now, is that, a, is that a 21st century regulatory structure? No, it's not. It's the Food and Drug Administration, and they are very um, overly cautious in most cases they force innovators to to overcome hugely financial and time obstacles that really do produce failures, not because something's not efficacious, but because it's so expensive to get it across the finish line. So I do think that we do we have to go back and talk about what is the appropriate model and really understand that the FDA's regulation today is not going to be a good fit for 10 years, especially with the rapid evolution of technology as it is today. It, they just don't have the capacity, in fact, Earlier this year there was a senior FDA official that came out and said at a national conference that they would be that they would be doing more except that they don't have the bandwidth to hold Zoom meetings for the initial applic- for sorting out the small administrative mistakes in, the, in in the initial applications. So we really are facing a situation where the regulatory agency the, the Food and Drug Administration has to have a complete revamp but the first step is to make sure that authority is not disseminated all over Washington DC um, in order to um, meet, um, meet um, woke, woke goals um, and, you know, and really kill the opportunity to have um, more innovation, more individualized treatments, and more, um, and more capacity to serve patients, so that's that's really why you why you hear me talking first about the fact that there is a regulatory system already in place. But I, I'm not happy, you know, I'm not happy with it, and I won't be happy with it. But my first goal is to make sure that it doesn't get worse before it gets better.
1: So if policymakers are uh, really focused on trying to write a piece of legislation about AI right now, obviously staying away from more regulation is part of your counsel. Is it also the case? You'd want to make sure that for anything they do, they both need improvements and a rethink at FDA, but also to make sure that for whatever limited regulatory superstructure you'd advise the FDA to ultimately adapt, they aren't doing things that inhibit or get in the way of that patient service, that ability to accelerate the provision of healthcare to individuals and all sorts of of challenged people around our country.
2: That's right. I mean, think about how rapidly apps are developing. I mean, there are new apps every single day, and I don't even know if anyone's even counting them. But let's imagine that there was a federal agency or bureaucracy that had to approve every app before it went public. It's absolutely impossible. Now with AI, we really do have the opportunity to have far more access for patients Far more customization for individualized treatment for patients and really incredible breakthroughs in terms of innovations and what those treatments look like but if we have an agency that's going to demand that they review every aspect of an algorithm if they're going to demand that they have to know um, you know all of the breakdowns of the potential impacts of their technology, we're going to really <laughs> stall it and kill that industry and that opportunity and that potential. Now, we do need to know that it is reasonable, that it's safe, but that's a, completely, that's a completely different type of regulatory approach than what we currently have. And that's why I think it's so important to make sure that we hold the line where we are and not venture into new territory of regulation that we've never had before.
0: I just want to talk a little bit about the recent story in the Financial Times, Naomi, that had, that discussed, I think a couple other outlets picked it up too, but a drug company outside of the United States, and I, that could be telling, uh, was able to shorten its its drug development time by maybe as much as two years from the time when it was discovered in its normal pathway to get into the hum, into human beings. I mean, if we're able to do that on a regular basis, that could be a tremendous opportunity to shrink development times and bring costs down. Uh, But again, it wasn't done in the United States. I think that should uh, worry us. Uh, Maybe it's the fact that people are worried about the regulatory structure, that they would have done it overseas, and then FDA would have swooped in and said, oh, we want to see the traditional approach done uh, next to it, even though there might be no scientific basis for it.
2: Well, I think it's important, and I think AI will shine a brighter light on this, that The United States does not lead medical innovation in all all areas, and that may come as a surprise to people, but let's take, for example, Japan. Japan has a regenerative medicine policy that allows a treatment to be available after phase, phase one basic safety testing, and it's provisionally approved for seven years. When we take a look at Germany, for example, neoantigen vaccines for cancer are legal. And that is available now. And so we have Americans who will fly to Germany to get treatment if they have the means, if they have the knowledge to do so, and get treatment there. But that's not available to American patients. So we really, and and so that's in part where Right to Try for Individualized Treatments comes in. The Goldwater Institute has pioneered another pathway under Right to Try, which is called Right to Try for, for Individualized Treatments. And it operates with um, under a physician's um, under a physician's care and is a, and would be available to those treatments that are covered under a federal wide assurance. And so under this law which is now which is now law in Arizona and Nevada and we are taking it to other states If you're seeking an individualized treatment, and this is particularly important for rare and ultra rare disease patients, that it's not illegal for you to seek that out and to obtain that treatment if the Institutional Review Board, if your physician, if the facility are are able and willing to make it available to you. But this is really important because a lot of lawmakers, a lot of the public don't realize that there are countries that are innovating in really important ways that we don't have access to. And so this idea that America leads the way in medical innovation, certainly true in a lot of areas, but it is not true when we're talking about the leading cutting edge technologies that are now available in healthcare. And when we talk about accelerating the clinical development process, machine learning has been important in clinical drug development, but it's happening outside the FDA. And um, one of the first um, right to try programs was from a company called ERC, and they have a treatment for glioblastoma. And my understanding is that their clinical platform does use machine learning, and their right to try program, which was a phase two program, actually used an off-label treatment in addition to the in, in addition to the clinical trial protocol, and it had superior results for glioblastoma, one of the deadliest cancers around. So. You know, this idea This idea that, that we lead the way is becoming less true over time and we're going to see it more and more. And it's going to, and I think that, you know, it's important that people know this, that they understand this, that if you have, if you're politically connected, if you have a medical background, if you have um, the means, you can get treatments that you cannot get here. And 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 that is um, you know that is something that lawmakers I think should be particularly sensitive to because their decisions the way that they regulate is going to directly impact what we have access to.
1: It sounds as if policymakers and their excitement about focusing on AI, particularly when it comes to healthcare, have just missed the essential fact that before they should be thinking about that, they need to be thinking about the current challenges that FDA and our other institutions responsible for ensuring healthcare and treatment and services get to, to patients need a serious review and that that's a necessary step well before you get to the point of putting new ideas out there about AI that at least these should be done in concert, if not FDA reform be a significant focus right now.
2: Well, I think that that's a really important point, but you can even take a step further back. And let's take the example of telehealth, for example. It wasn't until the pandemic that we saw the, we saw the federal and state governments relax um, and, and relax the rules around telehealth, where we have this technology that's been available for decades and really can expand access and affordability in healthcare, yet it was illegal. <laughs> so in many places and for many reasons. And so I think that there really needs to be a fundamental rethinking of reimagining health healthcare in the 21st century. If you were going to start from scratch, what kind of system would you build? Would you establish a lot of federal agencies with the overlapping and duplicative authority over healthcare? Probably not. What you would probably and hopefully more likely do is to establish a system where with informed consent, if you understand the risks, if you're under your physician's care, that you would be allowed. It's a preemptive, it, there's a presumption of legality as opposed to a presumption of illegality, of something being illegal, which is the case right now, where you have to beg the federal government for permission, for example, to have an individualized treatment. Um, you know, and obviously, you know, we know that lawmakers want to make good decisions and decisions that will help protect their constituents, but if you have, if you have informed consent, if you, if the patient understands the risks of a treatment, they understand the potential benefits, the potential side effects and negative outcomes that the federal government shouldn't get a veto stamp over that.
0: Naomi, let's, let's talk for a moment about uh, the Inflation Reduction Act, because I think it hits on a few themes that you talked about. One is, is mission creep of one regulatory agency coming into the zone of another. Um, you mentioned the the danger in AI, but in the drug space, we're seeing CMS questioning FDA's judgment around Alzheimer's drugs, for instance, and saying, "Oh no, we don't we don't really approve of of FDA's approval." And you had testimony from CMS officials where they didn't seem to understand that FDA's approval was a was a full approval. They didn't seem to understand the scientific standards that FDA did, which goes to show, you know, their lack of understanding of the clarity. And now with the Inflation Reduction Act, you've got CMS making decisions on pricing that are going to have big impacts on clinical development programs. We're already seeing programs get canceled and it's going to have big impacts as to whether or not companies decide to uh, continue to market drugs to uh, the medicare population for certain therapeutic areas you focus so much on the innovation the fda side the getting access across the line what do you make of all this push now on the payer side the federal government payment structure uh really clamping down on and restricting access so i
2: think this is the most concerning one of the most concerning areas of healthcare policy, and that is that the United States is now adopting a European-style rationing system for access to treatments, and they're doing a stealth rationing. It's not just that, oh, you can't have this, but it's more like, oh, we're going we're gonna to regulate by stealth because we're going to do it on based on price. What this really is about is an unelected pure bureaucracy basically establishing what the value of your life is worth. They are determining what the payment should be based on what they think your, the value of you is, and that is not only I think completely frightening, but it also is being—it's—it's it's also being done in a, the most anti-democratic way possible. It's being done in secret. It's being done by people who aren't elected. It's not transparent. And when we take a look at what they're going to regulate, let's take for example K Truda. Keytruda is uh, is an immunotherapy what that means is it's a treatment that goes after the deadly cancer cells that are in your body but also hide in your body and um, it, it seeks out these cells and kills them and it was originally approved for a lung cancer but it's now got a couple of dozen FDA approval, so a couple dozen indications that it's approved for, it's also approved in many cases for certain types of cancers for children. It's also um, used off-label. What that means is it's used for un- indications other than FDA approval, which is perfectly legal and is done all the time, very frequently in cancer in particular. Um, but, but this is going to be one probably, most likely, one of the drugs that's going to be targeted most heavily. What is not being considered in these decisions by bureaucrats and lawmakers is that, one, is that innovation happens over time. There are expensive innovations and the price comes down over time. But this cost of an expensive drug isn't just the cost of the drug. They also need to look at the offsetting savings. For example, the quality of life of that individual. The hospitalizations that would normally be required, the patient suffering, basically the disease burden of of that illness, and so we're really having lawmakers and policymakers and bureaucrats come in between what should be a doctor-patient decision um, in this space, and and really what it's going to mean is that we're going to lose innovation, both. Currently available medications, but also the medications that will be coming on that would have otherwise come online. Um, we know that making a profit is essential in terms of in terms of having innovators invest in these in these disease spaces. The more that you have government interference, the more it's going to slow down, stall, and kill innovation. In medical treatments, which is a complete shame, because we are on the cusp of enormous progress, and that's part of why the right to try for individualized treatment and the original right to try law exist. It is to corral off and partition off innovation, at least in some areas, so that we don't so that we don't allow lawmakers to kill it entirely.
0: Yeah, Naomi. Before I let Eric chime in, I got. I mean. K-Truda, just for those people who aren't familiar with it, that's the drug that saved Jimmy Carter's life. I mean, when Jimmy Carter was diagnosed, um, and Eric, how old is Jimmy Carter now? You know all the trivia.
1: <laughs> he caught me off
0: guard today, but 96, I believe. Yes. Uh, and I mean, he, he everybody thought he was a goner when he got that diagnosis. They gave him K-Truda, and boom, the guy's still alive. I mean, it was over a decade ago that he got diagnosed with that and the other thing, you flip between the, you, you know, we know that you need profits to drive innovation and we're on the cusp. It's two different we's. I think the people on on this, the people listening to this podcast know that profits are necessary to drive innovation. But there's plenty of politicians and bureaucrats who don't quite understand that basic concept and are constantly railing about greed and the profit motive in healthcare as if it's some evil, evil force that um, that's killing people. And the opposite is exactly the case. Uh, You know, so I just I just think we need to not forget this isn't some kind of mistake that that the left has done in pushing these policies. They actually believe that uh, profit is not necessary. And frankly, when companies kill programs uh, in response to the IRA, they either Question whether or not the company's being honest or say it's the price of doing business and somebody else will pop in and develop this, but it's not really true. So I just wanted to chime in with that because it's important to recognize what we're up against.
1: It sure is. And we'll hold on that. We'll be back with our next segment for further conversation on the IRA and its impact on drug innovation and the, the opportunity and the promise of AI. This is DC EKG House Call. We're out of the studio and on the road with host Joe Grogan, myself Eric Ullin, and our great guest Naomi Lopez of the Goldwater Institute. We'll be back.